really hard on our marriage and family, but thankfully my wife's amazing and she has a great job. And when I say I invested every penny, I invested every penny and put aside a few thousand dollars to try to live off of, maxed out my credit cards, uh, but just took that risk. There's definitely some mornings that you wake up and wonder like, what the hell am I doing? This is crazy. And there's definitely times like at dinner parties or social events where, you know, your friends ask you, so wait, what are you doing now? Like, why are you doing this? Hey, everybody, I'm Sam Coates, and this is the Driven By Podcast. Life's a lot more fun when you're all in and passionate about what you're building. Here, you'll hear me with entrepreneurs, operators, executives, and public servants from all over the country. They'll discuss their commitment to their craft, defining moments, what's made them successful, where things are headed in their space, plus so much more. This podcast is produced by the team at DrivenBySamCoats.com. And for more information and episodes, go to DrivenBySamCoats.com backslash podcasts. Before we get to today's episode, here's a quick word from our sponsor for today's podcast. AB Jets is a great story. It started very small with an entrepreneur and a dream. And it's now one of the largest Lear 60 jet companies in the United States. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. So bypass the hassle and fly private. Go to abjets.com for more information or call them at 888-520-JETS. Hey, everybody. My guest this week is entrepreneur and founder of Alma Dell Jaguar, Macaulay Williams. This episode was a blast. Macaulay, a former corporate attorney and CEO of Blue Note Bourbon, and he went all in on this new tequila company earlier this year. As Macaulay says, we're overloaded with options as consumers and authenticity and transparency matters more now than ever. Macaulay has put everything he has into this company and then he's raised several million and also found a one-of-a-kind production partner out of Mexico. This is a great episode that covers a deep dive into the spirits business, the past, present, and future, and why tequila is becoming more and more popular. While some believe tequila will pass vodka as the U.S. most popular spirit, building everything from the ground up with extreme detail and why that matters, plus so much more. Please enjoy this week's episode with Macaulay Williams. Macaulay, man, thanks for doing this. My pleasure. It's an honor to be here. Well, anytime you see somebody getting rolling a tequila company, you got to try to do a podcast if you'll allow it. Awesome. Well, I love doing podcasts and interviews. Could you share the edge or the fix you get launching this tequila company, launching a bourbon company prior, given that you have a very impressive background from an education standpoint at UVA, law school, and then an attorney at a major firm around the Southeast and parts of the country. What do you get as an entrepreneur that you didn't get in that lifestyle? Well, there's a lot to unpack in that question, but I, I think I always knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I just didn't know how to go about doing it. Like, what is the education or background that an entrepreneur needs to be successful before he or she has their big idea? And I thought going to law school would open up more doors than it would close, and that becoming a corporate attorney would offer a whole lot of foundational education to allow me to do pretty much anything I wanted. 
So I really went into law school never or hoping to never actually practice for very long, but wanting to do something more entrepreneurial minded. I just didn't know what that was going to be, what sector it would be. And I very specifically focused on only corporate and business law classes in law school because I realized because my father was a partner at a major law firm as well, that there's two main routes as a, a young attorney going into like firm life. You can become a litigator or you can become a corporate attorney. And litigators, you know, refer to any sort of courtroom trial related attorney. And a corporate attorney is any sort of business contract negotiation related attorney. They're two kind of fundamentally different practices. They used to back in the day, everybody kind of practiced, you know, all aspects, but they've become bifurcated and bifurcated career paths. And one pattern I saw was that the corporate attorneys consistently were able to get out, meaning they were able to go work for the big law firm, build up a resume, a book of business, and work with, you know, a lot of amazing companies and then go in-house with those companies and become general counsels or somehow go in-house with an investment firm, et cetera. So right out of the gate, business always fascinated me, and I knew that I didn't necessarily always want to be a career partner attorney, so I wanted to do the corporate things that seemed to open up more doors and you know, give me a potential out. And so I went into it with that mindset. I just didn't know what it was going to be. I mean, I'm the kind of person that's always dreamed up business ideas. Like in the third or fourth grade, I was the kid that sold candy out of my locker until I got busted by the principal. I actually had a lot more cash on hand than than they realized at the time. <laughs> I think I had, you know, like 80 or $90. And at the time, that was a lot. That's a lot of airheads. And we sold those... uh Warheads, the sour candies, those were really popular when we were growing up. But always dreaming and scheming of different ideas. In college, it was the same. But then it was more about how to raise money to throw a party than it was to actually monetize anything. But, you know, in law school and as an attorney, everybody that knew me and was close to me would tell you they got sick of hearing all of my ideas. I was dreaming up any and every kind of idea you could think of from ways to do small microfinancing for people's traffic tickets to I had I bought a corporate or industrial drone. I was actually the first person in the state of Tennessee to import an industrial personal use drone into the state. And I know that because I got uh, a pretty substantial fine from the Tennessee <laughs> uh, Department of Revenue and I owed an excise tax on this uh Chinese drone that I bought and imported that actually showed up to my office while I was at Baker Donaldson. <laughs> um, and the idea with that drone is I was going to, I looked, I sat in an office and overlooked the Mississippi River and all of uh, East Arkansas effectively and saw all the, the rice growing. And I was like, man, I had interned at a hedge fund where they invested and traded pretty much every commodity on earth. So I knew there was rice futures. And I was like, man, if we could get more accurate real-time data on the harvest using drones we could then sell that data to hedge funds. And so I embarked upon that endeavor. While practicing as an attorney, I created a a mobile beer vending business. A buddy of mine, Marshall, who started Home Place Pastures, which is a uh, organic and grass-fed meat farm, effectively they raise cattle and hogs there, um, has a lot of refrigerated trailers to deliver his meat, which is obviously perishable. Uh, And then one time when we were probably drinking a little too much on his farm. The beer was getting too hot in the summer, and we decided, well, what if we just drilled a hole in the damn refrigerated trailer and then stuck the beer tap through it? It'll keep the keg cold, and then we'll have ice-cold beer on the outside in the heat. And then he ended up doing that and installing one or two taps in one of his reefer trailers. 
And for a birthday party or some sort of party we had at my house, can't remember what the occasion was, but we had a big crawfish party. And we had, he brought up some crawfish from New Orleans and we had kegs of beer. And it was ice cold and it was hot as hell outside. And everybody afterwards was like, man, that beer trailer thing was awesome. And I was like, yeah, we just, my buddy Marshall and us, we just kind of whipped that up as an idea the other, you know, like last, last summer. And somebody called me and wanted to try to rent it and a light bulb went off. So I created a beer vending business where I took that base concept and designed mobile beer vending trailers that are like state of the art. So I took state of the art beer tap systems and installed them on my own custom designed beer trailers, which I designed in St. Louis, Missouri of all places, because that's of Anheuser-Busch and there's a substantial refrigerated truck industry there, I guess, from their beer delivery thing. But anyways, that was called Tapbox. We vended beer all across the Mid-South. Uh, I was the exclusive beer vendor at the Levitt Shell for like three years. While you were an attorney. While I was a practicing corporate attorney. Corporate attorney. Yes, I'd work like 60 or 70 hours a week at Baker Donaldson and then go do nights vending beer at the Levitt Shell, whatever event we had going on. Does ego or perception... Does that ever affect you even today, everything you're having to do to scrap and to get this company off the ground? Does that ever bother you? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think we'd be lying if we said ego didn't play into things. And I'm pretty good at self-analysis and reflection. And yeah, there's a couple of things that come to mind related to ego. One is like as an entrepreneur, you know, in a town like Memphis where, yeah, there's maybe not as many entrepreneurs as in other areas like the, you know, Silicon Valley, et cetera. Most people are on more standardized career paths. So you kind of know what that looks like at each phase, meaning like getting married in your 20s, have kids in your late 20s, early 30s. People are getting, you know, raises in their early to mid 30s and moving up to bigger houses, buying nicer cars, all of that. And as an entrepreneur, my, my career path looks very different. And so there, I'd be lying if I said there weren't times that I'm like, sitting there in the morning or at night and being like, dang, why, why did I pass up the good known salary to go do something way riskier? But as I like to say, my future that I've kind of dreamed up for myself looks very, very different than taking the standardized career path. And so it only makes sense that the path to get to that different future is also going to look very different. What do you think on those mornings, you know, when you're looking at a P&L statement that's negative or when you're looking at how much money you put into something or when you don't know exactly how the numbers are going to shake out for the next month, or you realize that there was an accounting error and you realize that a loss maybe might've been more than what it was. I mean, obviously there's a lot of good times on top of that, but is there anything you particularly, where you go to what you think about in those moments where you think about the several hundred thousand dollars you'd be making as a corporate attorney to where you, you don't quit or you don't go back or you don't, not take the jump like plenty of other people that help holds them up. Yeah. So I guess for me as an entrepreneur, the big, the big thing is liquidity. So um, as an entrepreneur, you start a company, it's a private company. I mean, you can't sell your stock like on the you know, public exchange. So you're building all this value in this illiquid asset, which is your stock or membership interest. If it's an LLC but this illiquid asset of equity ownership in a company that on paper, even if your things are succeeding, could be worth a whole lot of money, but there's no way to convert that asset into money unless you have a liquidity event, which means like going public, selling the company, et cetera. So uh, obviously to do that, to build a company takes some sacrifice. That means taking a, a smaller salary than what you get at a big, you know, 
going to work for a big established corporation or something. So it's the liquidity conundrum of being like, man, I'm you know, busting my butt trying to build this business and things may or may not be going well. I de- they've luckily gone pretty well so far and I'm building all this value, but it's only on paper. And I'm just sitting there like, how do I ever actually, you know, convert this into cash in my pocket? And that's like, that's where I go to on the darker days when I'm starting when I doubt a little bit and just start, then you're kind of reminded by the statistical odds of having the liquidity event, which are very low, meaning very few companies are built up and succeed and sell for some big exit price and very few companies build up and go public and all that. So that's like the hardest thing is like you're building all this thing. And you kind of feel like you're on a hamster wheel because even though the more you're building and the more your accountants can kind of show you the value of what you've built, you're still just not, you don't feel like anywhere closer to like monetizing it, if that makes sense. And that's just really real because I, I have like a, a two-year-old son and you know, I don't, I'm not like a super material person, but you do start thinking like, man, are we going to send him to private school? And like, I need a new car and our house is getting small. It'd be nice to be able to, uh, you know, have, have cash. What you're saying is all those thoughts come in all the time, which anybody that's been there before can relate, but there's something inside of you that makes you just turn that knob down and just stay the course. Yeah. And I think that's the second part of the ego question you asked that that's maybe like the more like interesting, deeper philosophical question is sort of like, why take the risk to begin with? And I think it, I've really thought long and hard about this. And I think it's born out of some place of insecurity or fear. If you really are honest with yourself as an entrepreneur of that, like the, my, for me, the big fear is dying or being old and looking back and having a lot of regrets and saying like, it could have been me or like, what if I'd taken more risk? And I remember hearing that from some like older folks of like my one number one regret in life was not taking more risk. And so I just decided from an early standpoint that, you know, I may fail, but I'm certainly not going to be the person that regrets not taking more enough risk because, you know, I, I have lofty ambitions to travel the world, see things and hopefully set my family up for success and uh, that no risk, no reward kind of mentality. So I'm kind of all in and I've always been that way. I think my parents would say that maybe even to a fault. AB Jets is a great story. Started very small with an entrepreneur and a dream. And it's now one of the largest Lear 60 jet companies in the United States. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. So bypass the hassle and fly private. Go to abjets.com for more information or call them at 888 888- Five two zero jets. So you you've always had these ideas. You were talking about this commercial drone that you got. You had to handle some things with the state. You talked about interning at Tudor Investments or whatever the hedge fund is mm-hmm. that you were at. Talked about looking at futures on was a rice production. Yeah, and so you've always seen things or tried to understand why something doesn't exist. Which, by the way, the the drone idea I think was brilliant. I forgot the company's name, but there's a company that does like essentially monitoring and surveillance for the world that has contracts with NASA and every major country. I forgot what the guy's name was, <laughs> but it just sounds like you're a few zeros away from a capital standpoint on, on getting to that level. That but. was the big problem is I started to go to some conferences and just met people that had obviously seen the same opportunity and were just way. What happened was I met this guy who invented these micro satellites that they were shooting up and they had 
the permits to shoot up satellites at a really low range that would circle the globe two or three times before they fell out of orbit. And he was showing me how it worked, and I was like, oh, crap. Like, <laughs> that's so much more advanced. So much for, like, the $10,000 drone. <laughs> but, but then you had this beer tap business, and so then how'd you get in the whiskey business? Or was, was there another step before that? No. So, I mean, I was just kind of setting the backdrop of, like, most people don't just have, like, one big idea. Like, it's kind of like history kind of views it that way. But if you look behind the, uh, the scenes, there's probably a lot of failures and a lot of uh, random things that didn't work out before you get there. So I was doing mergers and acquisitions and securities offerings. And so M&A means like buying and selling businesses, right? Or and combining businesses and securities means effectively raising money through debtor equity for companies. And so I was putting together a lot of private equity deals, actually. Most of my work was for big, like international public companies, but our regional business ended up being a lot of private equity ventures. And I was putting together these private equity investment funds for commodity traders and various other uh, investment theses. And so I was very familiar with the structure of what it took to build a private equity fund in terms of like the, the paperwork and the legal organization of it. And I was always really fascinated with that because I had worked at a hedge fund, which is effectively just a really big private equity fund. And one of my buddies started a vodka brand called Pyramid Vodka here in Memphis. And I'd always thought it was really amazing, the, the leap that he'd taken and to start a distillery. Since I was have, had my beer business, it was sort of tangential and looked, at, looked up to it. And unfortunately, it didn't work out for them. And I'll spare the details of maybe my thoughts of why. But one thing stuck out to me is when I asked them kind of like, what was the big, like the highest level mistake or whatever that was made? And it was, well, we were making vodka grain to glass, and I was like, well, doesn't everybody make vodka grain to glass? And then he's like, no, most every vodka distillery buys industrial ethanol from an ethanol plant and then redistill it and then bottle it. And so by creating a boutique craft vodka grain to glass, their cogs were just way out of whack compared to people that are buying industrial bulk ethanol and redistilling it like a lot of the large brands do. Um, and I was like, that's cogs. Cost of goods sold. Yeah, and I was yeah. like, that's so interesting. I had no idea you could buy bulk ethanol and redistill it and that that was vodka or that was even consumable. I didn't even know what bulk ethanol really was. And then he had an idea of how to save the company, which was if we could distill like 50 or 60 barrels of bourbon or whiskey, we could put it in barrels and it would appreciate in value. And we could, I can't remember all the details of it, but there was a way to, that they had come up with of, in theory, they could make whiskey instead of vodka and the barrels would appreciate in value as they aged and they could use that appreciation through borrowing money against it or something to get more money into the business. That really stuck with me because effectively that's describing like a new commodity class. So I started doing some research and realized that back in the 1800s, barrels of whiskey were traded all over the country and world as like an actual stated commodity in periodicals like the New York Times or, or excuse me, Wall Street Journal said would quote whiskey prices. And I was like, that's so interesting. And there's all this really interesting history around prohibition. But, but long story short, the concept of, well, what if instead of like distilling bourbon, you just said that you could in theory go buy bulk, you know, ethanol for vodka. It's like, can you buy bulk whiskey from somebody instead of having to make it ourselves? And they're like, oh yeah, yeah. There's a bunch of these big contract distillers that make most of the whiskey for the industry that will sell you bulk whiskey. And I was, light bulbs started going off. What, so whiskey market, is it $9 billion, $10 billion? It depends on how you quantify it, whether it's like retail sales or supplier, which is the brand owner wholesale to distributor. 
it's a very large, you know, multi-billion dollar industry in this country. Would, would you say essentially that white label, the way you described it, is that 80%? Is that 60%? I would say that is like somewhere around 30% of the market. So like a third. Yeah. Okay. And it's probably something closer to 80 to 80% of the brands on the shelf are produced in that manner. But a lot of those brands are really small, right? And so if you look at a volume perspective or revenue perspective, it's probably more like 25, 30% versus the actual brands on the shelf, where it's probably getting closer to 70 to 80% of the brands um, that have done it in some sort of bulk trading of, of, of whiskey and blending. But that concept stuck with me of, you know, we could buy bulk whiskey, it'll appreciate in value as it ages, and then we could resell it. So I started just doing all kinds of research on that concept and effectively created a private equity investment model to invest in bourbon as a commodity. And I created that <laughs> at night while working at the law firm. And then that's what ultimately gave me the confidence to, to leave the law firm to get into the spirits business. It wasn't uh, creating a brand. It was this concept of creating a private equity fund to corner the bourbon market, which we did. We did not corner the bourbon market, but we created multiple private equity funds and we're very successful, made our investors a really great return. And that's what we, that's what I left the practice of law to do was to manage effectively whiskey, a miniature whiskey hedge fund. And then somewhere along the way, we realized we had, so we actually used that model. So I was representing the vodka distillery that was in liquidation. We used that model to pitch other investors as a new business model to buy the vodka distillery out of liquidation and convert it into a whiskey, miniature whiskey hedge fund. And we had used the license that the vodka distillery had, the Tennessee liquor license, distilling license to physically possess all this whiskey. And then we would use the warehouse space to, to age it in. So you would take the product that was already manufactured for vodka, but that could be transferable over to, to bourbon, at so, least on buying it out of liquidation. Yeah, so we took their, like, the assets, like the bottling line, the license, the offices, the lease on the warehouse. That's what we were interested in, to be able to step right into a license as opposed to have to apply for a new distilling license because my research showed that to build, like, this big whiskey warehouse, there's no such license that exists in Tennessee, and the only license that you can have to possess that much whiskey is a distiller's license. And here's a distillery that's going out of business. We could buy that license for really cheap to— implement our new business model. So you had started the private equity fund essentially by buying product and holding it while it appreciates. Exactly. So that was the first move. That was the and first then, move. And is, then the second move was actually buying or taking out of liquidation a production facility. Yep. So that way we could physically store our own barrels versus having to pay someone else to store them. So the idea is we'd go to big distilleries and buy their production contracts. So big distilleries that sell production to other brands, you know, have a production schedule and you can buy capacity from them, meaning we could buy like a thousand barrels worth of bourbon out of their capacity as new make bourbon. Buy that, they fill it in the barrels and store it. And then as that bourbon ages, it appreciates dramatically in value as it, because the older a bourbon is, the more valuable it is. And, and we could pay that distiller to store it or we thought we could store it cheaper in our own warehouse and not having to pay someone else. So that's why we wanted this vodka warehouse, which and we sort of sort of converted the business model from vodka into something entirely different, just using the license and the assets. And that's where my my, my legal background came in to kind of tie all those loose ends together. That's fascinating. 
but yeah, so then, but then what happened was, is we were doing that and um, we realized that, well, we have this amazing, you know, equipment too, that's not being used, bottling line, et cetera, the distilling license. We should also come out with a brand. And that was kind of always in the back of our mind when we bought the five good distillers, we could come out with our own brands. And uh, we did, and we piloted that concept uh, as Blue Note uh, bourbon, you know, wanting to grow it to be successful, but not really realizing the true potential of that until we got into it. We, we started off and just sold it locally here in Memphis. People responded really well to the bourbon. We were able to get access to really great bourbon that we could blend to make our first batches because we were now had a year or two's experience buying and trading bulk bourbons. So we knew all the players. Um, we put it out there, Blue Net that is, and people responded to it really well. And that has since, that was in 2018, that's since grown into, um, and the company, as the brand started to take off, shifted its focus out of investing into building the brand. And that's now uh, Blue Note, which is one of the most successful craft bourbon brands in the, in the country. Is there a lot more revenue growth, cash flow as a brand versus more behind the scenes, asset-based buying and then holding and then selling? Well, if you think about it, if you're building an asset management book, which is effectively what we were doing, um, you're only as valuable as your assets. And so it's sort of like being a stockbroker or a real estate agent of like, you can make a lot of money doing it, but you don't have any enterprise to really sell other than like your book of business, which isn't worth a ton. You hear like, you know, industry multiples on EBITDA or revenue and all that. You don't hear about that a lot when it comes to trading a stockbroker's book or a real estate agent's book. Because those client lists aren't only, are only worth so much. So you're not building true like enterprise value. You're building cash flow. But with a brand, you're building true equity and something that can actually be sold off to someone else. And so it became clear that if we wanted to build like a, a large enterprise value, the brand was a, a clearer way to go. And now Blue Note is really successful and is a known brand. And the shift was all kind of just organic and natural. Um, and I was the, you know, one of the co-founders and CEOs of, of that enterprise until January of 2022. I'm still an owner and stockholder there, and but I've gone out on my own now to do this tequila venture that you were talking about earlier. What have you learned about distribution? What have you learned about get to market? What's more effective than anything else? And as opposed to just focusing on a lot of different things that don't really move the needle. Great uh, question. And uh, when you start a brand, so I'm going through this now with my tequila brand, you're, there's just so many things you can do to market it. And there's so many different um, opportunities. You can almost drown in the opportunity of what you could do at the expense of actually taking meaningful action that's going to you know, increase sales, et cetera. Meaning like everybody has all these crazy ideas of things that aren't necessarily bad ideas, but are hard to like measure the success of, whether it's throwing some event or donating to some charity banquet or, or various online social media concepts. It's like, but how do you actually like get the brand off the ground and, and build it? And so we have a saying about like, it's not just about ROI, it's about ROE, return on effort. It's not just return on investment, but return on effort, meaning in a startup, you have a small team and those team are made up of you know, humans and humans have you know, a certain number of hours in our day and week and month that we can allocate to working and so, like, what's the most effective use of our time? And that has to be, like, a real thing that someone asks themselves when building a brand. It's, like, effectively, like, what's the single thing I can be doing today that's going to grow sales the most? And so, our distribution system for beverage alcohol in this country is really complex. So, each state has its own system. And it's, this is all due to the repeal of Prohibition 
Congress, federal government gave the jurisdiction of alcohol sales to the states to determine. So each state developed its own system of how alcohol is sold. So in our country, to do business, it's effective like dealing with 50 different little countries uh, when it comes to alcohol. And so it takes building, uh, understanding the law in each state and what makes it different and finding a distributing partner in each state. Because legally, when prohibition was repealed, every state enacted what's called a three-tier system. And the three-tier system is kind of unique to the beverage alcohol industry. And so there's suppliers, brand owners, or distilleries, producers, fall in the supplier category. There's wholesalers or distributors that actually distribute the product within their market. And there's retailers, which are liquor stores or bars or restaurants. There can be no intermeddling or intermingling between the three tiers, meaning I'm a supplier, brand owner. I cannot own any interest in a distributor or a bar or restaurant legally. And I legally cannot distribute my product myself. I can't sell directly to a liquor store. I have to sell to a wholesaler. And the laws around that and the standardized business practice around that are different in each state. And so it really takes experience of building the network of distributing partners in all 50 states to launch a brand successfully in this country. And it's a pretty daunting task from the regulatory side to the negotiating with the distributors, because in their markets, the distributors kind of rule the roost because they're the local business that has the exclusive rights to distribute beverage alcohol, sort of like as an oligopoly, like this little group of people that have this insulated, protected business that no one else can come into, or it's really hard to break into that distributing market within one state or to the next. So they're really powerful in each one of their own markets. And then you have to actually build a brand, which means marketing to consumers and convince people to buy it and what makes it good. It's a lot. What excites me most about doing this is I get to do, I get to use so many different parts of my brain from all my legal background to whatever business acumen I've learned over the last few years to creative marketing concepts. So I always design the liquid for any of my brands myself, meaning the flavor profile, the recipe. Um, And I do most of the branding design for my stuff. I always work with groups to help me in this endeavor, but as any of those people that have worked with me will say, I'm extremely opinionated about the look or the taste of my products. And so that, that's really the fun, most fun side of the business is the sales and marketing and the liquid design side. You're talking specifically, you're not just talking about design, bottling, the way the product feels, the glass, the recycled packaging, the colors, everything. You're talking about how the tequila is produced. I'm talking about all of it, the including ingredients. how the tequila is produced. Yeah, so, so, so you're super into every aspect of it. Yeah, I touch every single aspect of it, literally. So, it, Were you that involved with whiskey and bourbon? Yes. Yeah, designing the entire flavor profile. So if you want to create a, a tequila brown, let's use that because that's what we're doing. That's what I'm doing now. Um, it first comes with you got to either buy or build a distillery. We opted to the, the other option, which is to contract with an existing distillery to produce for us, which is probably no surprise when you've heard my background of kind of doing that in whiskey. Um, and then you have to design a recipe and a flavor profile to that tequila, which involves working with the master distiller at the distillery to come up with a unique flavor profile that makes your brand different than others. Then you have to figure out how to finance the buying of that liquid from the distillery. So it involves ra- raising capital through debt or equity. And then you got to figure out where you're going to get the glass bottles from, the labels, the stoppers, the seals, and the shipper boxes. And then once you do that, you got to figure out what's the brand going to be called. You got to trademark the brand. You got to design what the package looks like, 
come up with a story for the brand and how to market it to consumers. And then once they've actually produced the liquid, make sure it meets the initial standards that you designed. And then once they've actually produced the liquid too, then you have to figure out in tequila, which is all made in Mexico, how to get it from Mexico to the U.S., which is where I'm trying to sell it, which involves figuring out intra-Mexican logistics, meaning getting it from the distillery to the border. And then you have to go through all the customs paperwork to get it into the U.S. and then figure out where to warehouse it once you get it into the U.S., and then you get into the whole building the brand and distribution phase of now you've got your finished bottles and cases of tequila here that taste amazing, supposedly, and have this cool brand idea. Now you got to figure out how to sell it to distributors and retailers across the country. And then on top of that, the ultimate daunting task is figuring out how to convince people, actual consumers, to go to that retailer and buy it. <laughs> so there's a lot to it. All right. You just listed uh, 12 things plus, I think, a few. If I'm okay asking this, if not, we'll cut it out. But you said you put everything you had into this tequila company. That's right. You talked about having a two-year-old and your wife even buying you a laptop, something like that. So you've put it all on the line, and you just listed out something that's incredibly complicated. Yeah. I mean, it's not rocket science. There's a lot of moving parts to starting a tequila brand, but I didn't have any money. I had this stock in Blue Note that's supposedly worth a whole lot of money now. But again, we talked about that liquidity thing. And uh, if I'm going out on my own, I need a salary or some form of income. But I knew I wanted to start my own company, so I started over from scratch. I really wanted to build another spirit brand, and this time I wanted it to be in tequila. Yeah, so my I left like the month before my birthday, and my on my birthday I asked my wife for a new computer because um, you know I left the company, so I needed a new laptop and a new cell phone, and she got those for me. And I told her, like, with this laptop and cell phone, I'm going to build a billion-dollar company. And so then I needed to figure out, you know, how in the hell do I start building a tequila brand, which is all produced in Mexico. So I took all my life savings and invested it into forming my company, Morningside Brands, and started reaching out to folks in the industry to get me put in contact with distilleries in Mexico. Interviewed a bunch of them, and then bought a plane ticket to Guadalajara and rented a car and drove all across central Mexico meeting with every distillery that would see me. I'd set up a lot of the meetings in person, uh, but totally as fate would have it, the distillery that's my partner, I met these guys in Guadalajara that owned a tequila bar and uh, showed them the list of distilleries I've been meeting with. So Guadalajara is the central city in the state of Jalisco where all the tequila comes from. Showed them the list of all the distilleries I've been meeting with. And like, hey, look, those are all fine distilleries, but none of them make great tequila. We'll show you some folks that make great tequila. We tasted through all these products that they had on their on their bar. I was like, great, can you get me meetings with any of these guys? And they're like, no, 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 they, they, don't, they don't work with gringos. So, oh, okay, well, their tequila was awesome, so thanks for letting me try it, but it'd be nice to I'm here on a mission. And they're like, well, we know one family that will work with outsiders, and we can probably get you a meeting with them. And that's kind of how we left it. We exchanged phone numbers. And I went to go meet with the other distilleries that I already planned on meeting with. And as fate would have it, they WhatsApped me one night, which is how we communicate down there instead of text, and said, hey, we got you a meeting with Sergio Vivanco at the Vivanco family estate. And I thought, okay, great. I've never heard of that group. And couldn't look up a whole lot of, about them because they don't have a huge online presence. But I took the meeting not thinking anything of it. And, of course, that coincidentally is the group that we ended up partnering with. Uh, once I met Mr. Vivanco and his team, it was just uh, a 
remarkable their care for the land and the product and the quality that they produced and it was instant to me that they were going to be our partners and then i was able to negotiate a production contract with them and uh, their master distiller sergio cruz and i as well as a consultant named adam who founded the international tequila academy the three of us with mr bivanco's kind of oversight spent about nine months designing the flavor profile for this tequila that's now Almadel jaguar tequila What'd that feel like, having a two-year-old being early, mid-30s, not just leaving a corporate attorney job, leaving the company you were a part of when you left, and then being given a laptop by your wife and totally being given the opportunity to either make it and succeed, either in a, in a way that's sufficient or a very big way, or completely fail and lose everything you have up to this point. Yeah, man. So a lot of risk. I'm, I'm clearly a risk taker. I like building businesses. Um, I can't say that it was easy because I didn't have any form of income for about 13 months once I embarked on that, on that journey, which was really hard on our marriage and family. But thankfully, my wife's amazing and she has a great job. And I'd saved up, you know, when I, when I invested... When I say I invested every penny, I invested every penny and put aside a few thousand dollars to try to live off of, maxed out my credit cards, uh, but just took that risk. There's definitely some mornings that you wake up and wonder, like, what the hell am I doing? This is crazy. And there's definitely times like at dinner parties or social events where, you know, your friends ask you, so wait, what are you doing now? Like, why are you doing this? That sounds crazy, which get really old after a while. There's even times at events where maybe I don't know the people very well and some new couple is like, oh, so Macaulay, what do you do? And sometimes it's just easier to say, um, I'm an attorney, just to deflect because I don't want to have to explain the whole thing over again. But with it also comes this amazing sense of excitement and freshness. There's no more exciting time in a business venture than at the beginning when anything is possible. It's also the scariest time, but it's the most exciting time and arguably the most fun time in the sense of you're just building something. And so that inherent sense of optimism that we entrepreneurs have kicks in and you start dreaming about what it can be. And Steve Jobs, not to compare myself to him, but sort of situationally of leaving a company and starting something new, he described after he left Apple in the 80s that there was this, after he kind of went through some self-doubt and all that, this amazing sense of lightness and freshness of being new again and being able to, to start over. But yeah, it's certainly not for everybody being an entrepreneur because there's no safety net. You know, we're, we're like out here doing it with, you know, risking it all. But that's where the great reward comes from. And every successful entrepreneur I've ever read about or met took some equally risky leap. There's a great saying that I love that the difference between entrepreneurs and most other people is when we get to the edge of a cliff, and this is all obviously metaphorical, uh, most people will try to figure out what it's going to take to get to the bottom of the cliff and end up never starting, whereas the entrepreneur just jumps off and figures out how to build an airplane on the way down. So we leap uh, and try to figure it out <laughs> once we've left. You said you, you're going to build a billion-dollar company. Is there any logic behind that, how you even got to that number? Well, I mean, that was sort of a, uh, a figure of speech, but the idea is to build a very successful multi-hundred million dollar business. And the reason I got to the billion dollar figure is what's really cool about beverage alcohol is there are really amazing exits. 
So like you always hear about tech companies that, you know, start up in someone's garage and sell for some huge amount. And that's because in tech, there's these huge revenue multiples or EBITDA multiples that are placed on a growing tech brand. Interestingly, in beverage alcohol, we see similar multiples and valuations that can be created really quickly. So one of the really exciting things about beverage alcohol and spirits in particular is there's a healthy mergers and acquisitions market, M&A market, meaning there's a lot of big companies that want to buy new brands or invest in new brands. And new brands, if they succeed, which is not very likely, but if they do, the few that do um, are able to get to huge valuations. So two of my buddies that I met through the trade, like at trade shows, started a bourbon brand called Penelope Bourbon a year after we started Blue Note. And they're just two guys with a warehouse in southern New Jersey. And in four or five years, they built it up and sold it for $215 million back in May. So it's things like that that show that that roadmap is possible. There's some really famous exits like George Clooney's Casamigos sold for a billion dollars to Diageo, which is a big liquor conglomerate. So there is like market precedent for building a spirit brand that can have a huge hugely successful number behind it. And that's because of, I mean, I, th- I think 60% of Americans drink alcohol. Is that right? Probably something like that. I mean, it's insane. It's such a popular item that's consumed, I guess. Is that why the acquisitions and the value? That's part of it. And then consumers do, over time, build brand loyalty. So meaning if you can get somebody to drink your product and buy it again, there's a lot of data that shows that they will be repeat buyers. So there's like predictability in the revenue streams. And then also there's really good margins in spirits. I mean, it's not as big as what most people think because I have to sell to a distributor who then has to market up and sell it to a retailer who then has to market up and sell it to you or me if we want to just go buy a bottle at the store. But in our industry, the industry standards around 50 to 60% gross profit margin, which on like a physical product, meaning like not a tech instrument or uh, an investment contract or something, that's a really, really strong gross profit margin. So gross profit's just like the price you sell it for minus the cost of goods sold, what it costs to produce that product, um, whatever it is. And we have really healthy gross profit margins. And are you saying to really build true sustainable value, you've got to nail the product and you've got to nail the story. If you're not going to have distribution like George Clooney, Justin Timberlake, The Rock, whoever, because you you don't have that distribution to start with, and so the product's got to be exceptional. And earlier we talked about 1,600 different brands out there, right? There's actually 3,000 tequila brands, believe so, it or not. Am I right with what I said, or do I have a no, blind you're, spot? No, you're, you're totally right. But so it's more than just having a great product. We can all probably think of an example of some brand, whether it be a food or beverage or clothing, that made a really – or technology or software or hardware that made a really great product, whatever it is, that didn't succeed. So it's not only do you have to have an amazing product, but somehow you have to figure out how to sell it. And you have to get people to buy it regularly. So it's what creates the most value is velocity and sales. I mean, ultimately, when it comes to, quote, value creation, it's just pure like business and accounting, and it's all around sales. And so in our business, when we're starting a new brand, it's literally what are your sales, but it's like, what is the growth trajectory of your brand, which is measured through a term we use called velocity, like how fast is your brand growing? And those guys that started Penelope, 
and George Clooney, the reason why they got these huge multiples, meaning like they weren't, George Clooney was not selling anywhere close to a billion dollars worth of tequila when he got paid a billion dollars for the brand. It was because the brand was growing like wildfire. And so that's what people look for to measure value is like, what are your actual real sales? And then what's like your discounted cash flow, which is another way of saying, what is your growth trajectory and potential? And if you see like people talk about like seeing a hockey stick and growth, that's what everybody wants to see to get real big value is a brand that is coming roaring onto the scene, growing like a weed and building a strong consumer adoption. And that's things like social media following consumer engagement and what's described as brand equity, which um, I'll spare the listeners of describing like how to value intellectual property, which is technically what we're talking about when we say brand equity. So is there anything that you feel comfortable talking about with George Clooney or Penelope from a velocity standpoint? What are you willing to share that if you get right, that'll happen? I'm willing to share anything on, on my tequila. So we've launched it in five states with a national rollout plan. So I am trying to build that national distribution footprint. We have a 15-state rollout plan over the next six months. We just started selling in May of 2023, and we were actually profitable our first month because of those healthy margins. And I now am a not experienced, but somewhat experienced operator, so I know how to manage my costs as well. But our goal with this brand, so this brand uh, is all about raising money and awareness for wild jaguar conservation. So my uncle, my dad's brother, moved to Mexico 30 years ago to study wild jaguars, of all things. And he was a wildlife conservationist and wildlife photographer. And he formed the Northern Jaguar Reserve, which is the largest privately managed wildlife refuge in all of Mexico. How many acres is that? It, they own 60,000 acres that he was able to acquire, and they manage an additional 128. So all in, it's 188,000 acres of protected land. Um, and it's home to the northernmost breeding ground, mating ground of wild jaguars. There's only like, is it 300 jaguars? How many are left globally? There's probably like 3,000 jaguars left globally, and there's probably like 1,000 of them in Mexico. So 188 acres, 8,000 8, acres yeah. in Mexico. Your uncle founded that. Yep. They're on the verge of being extinct. Yep. And they're actually native to the U.S., but we have driven them out of our country through habitat destruction and hunting and poaching. And so I've always thought that was really amazing what he did. And so for this brand, I wanted to do something bigger than just focus on all that financial stuff we were just talking about and build something like a legacy, something that I'd be really proud of for my grandchildren to hear about me. And I've always thought what my uncle did was so cool. So I created this brand sort of to raise awareness for what he's done while also trying to, you know, use that amazing uh, consumer appeal to build our brand. And so I mentioned all of that because our goal is to donate 10% of our profits through this tequila brand to support environmental conservation, namely jaguar conservation, in the U.S.-Mexico borderlands. And my number one goal with this is to build this brand up through either donations or by selling the brand, I can use a percentage of my profits to endow the Northern Jaguar Reserve. So it's this amazing piece of property. It's one of the most remote properties in all of North America, remote meaning relative to human influence, truly wild. And the team there have been really great at, you know, getting this off the ground, the initial environmental conservation and study. Are you talking about your uncle? My, my uncle and his I, team, but they have not been amazing at raising money and awareness for their cause. 
meaning they, they're great scientists and conservationists, but they don't know how to raise enough money to endow this venture. And I think I can do that. And I'm using my tequila brand, which is what I know best, is how to build a liquor brand. That's what I've been doing for the last seven years. But I can use that skill set to build a brand that really does something amazing that's much bigger than just selling liquor. It's about protecting the world and the environment and my uncle's legacy. If you didn't have a really compelling story like that, do you think you could even start this tequila company and have the traction at all? I think you could if you had a lot of money that you were willing to light on fire relative to a marketing campaign. But yeah, a good story is much better than a a really expensive, over-budgeted marketing campaign. Because what's cool about our brand is it's entirely sustainably produced, no chemicals used whatsoever, entirely organic. I use 100% recycled materials in my packaging. So instead of just sourcing glass labels and all that, like I mentioned earlier, I found producers that made 100% recycled versions of all of it. So we use repurposed cork stoppers, biodegradable seals, repurposed, excuse me, recycled Mexican glass. We take the agave fiber left over from our milling process of making the tequila and make paper out of it. And those are the labels on our bottles. And we use 100% recycled cardboard shipper boxes. And I was able to do that by finding people in Mexico that had small production facilities all within an 80-mile radius of our distillery that made all this stuff from recycled materials. And you had no clue when you were starting. No, no. I had all never, this came together in such a— I'd only, only ever been to Mexico to visit my uncle. I'd never really been to Mexico in terms of, like, this region of Mexico where tequila was produced. You had quit your job, put everything in before you had any idea it was going to come together. Yeah, like exactly. Like this, up to this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just knew—I just had faith in myself that I could pull it off. Faith—you talked about faith and faith. How do you think about that? Well, uh, since— my wife and I've been married. I've definitely found faith more in terms of like Christian faith, but that's not maybe the conscious motivator. That's more of like the deeper morality motivator that like that I'm trying to you know embody. But it's just I don't know. I feel like I can figure it out, and like I'll always bet on myself. Maybe again to a fault. But um, did you have any thought that maybe you're going to go do this and you're going to lose whatever the amount of money was, and you're going to need to go get a job again? Uh, so maybe that's the big motivator is that like over my dead body, am I going to go practice law again? And if this fails, that's what I have to go do. And so as much as, as much as I loved the foundation in terms of like the educational background that that provided, I really did not enjoy the actual practice of corporate law, like the billing hours, working on someone else's file, all that. And so maybe that's the, the if we get right down to it is like, this has to succeed because I can't afford for it not to succeed. And I'm definitely not going to go back to practicing law. I kind of took us off, sorry, but the way you laid out your manufacturing partner, the way you talked about the product, the way you talked about the way it's made, you talked about the paper and how it's being refined down. I just, I couldn't believe how tight things have come together up to this point and the amount of detail and care and the compassion that you have for everything that goes into it. And I just, that's why I had to ask you because like, a lot of people, myself included, you get tripped up by all the unknowns, and it's pretty incredible hearing it up to this point. Well, I mean, the one thing that's uh, so just a day in a life of an entrepreneur, it doesn't matter whether you're in technology or beverage alcohol, the only thing certain in any given one of my weeks or days is I know something's going to go wrong. I just don't know what the hell it's going to be. So there's always some crisis or something. Most recently, it was 
we had 50,000 bottles on the bottling line that all had a defect in the label, like a bubble that had occurred, and trying to figure out, you know, how in the heck that got there and how to solve it. And that was that was today's problem. I, was I mean, that today? Well, that uh, we found out at the beginning of this week. I've been working on it through today, and today I think we finally resolved it. By doing what? Uh, well, we had to use statistics, and I think we took math class together in high school to go to, instead of counting all 50,000 bottles, to get a sample size together to try to figure out what percentage of the labels were actually defected, and then come up with a solution to run them back down the bottling line. So all of our products bottled by hand. It's women from this small town of Arandas, where the distiller the distillery is right outside of. So it's all local, you know, unskilled labor, effectively. So a lot of things can go wrong when there's that many hands touching a product. You know, it's not a machine. And we had to figure out a way of figuring out what percentage of our products defected. How do we separate the good bottles from the bad bottles quickly? Because I need inventory to continue selling here in the States. And then figure out what was actually causing the bubble to begin with. So we have two problems of how do we cure the inventory that already has the defect? And how do we prevent it from... And this is on your manufacturing partner. This is on my manufacturing partner in Mexico. I found out that it's a combination of the glue on our labels, the heat in the warehouse, and the unskilled labor that was creating the bubble. So, and the unskilled part's not meant to like belittle these people are amazing, but it's just not a machine or some sort of like highly industrialized process. It's just a group of humans physically with their hands putting labels on bottles. Yeah. So a lot of things can go wrong, right? But it's over 100 degrees right now, unfortunately, in, in our bottling room in Mexico. And the glue on the labels degrades in high heat. And then the high heat also causes more human error because people get tired and everything. And so I've had to send in my operations guys that work for me that live down there and to actually be physically present on the bottling line to inspect everything and pay for additional labor to effectively apply the labels twice. Meaning one person, what was happening was, is the glue on the label doesn't interact until it touches the surface and then pressure is applied. And so what was happening was, is it's really hot. So that means you have to use even more pressure to make the glue chemically bond to the glass. And so they were not pressing extra hard because they didn't know they had to. So now we have to press it twice. So one of the bottlers applies the label and does their original kind of hand press to the label to interact with, then somebody has to press it again, even harder, just to make sure that glue bonds to the glass. And yeah, so that was a big, a big one this week. But there's, there's always something, and I say it's something will go wrong. And it's entrepreneurship is nothing but a series of highs and lows. So you'll be on, I'll be on cloud nine one day because I've made a big, like a new market opened up, or we get some amazing review, or something really positive happens. And then, like without fail, something really bad's going to happen the next day. And it's just being able to ride that wave of ups and downs and not get disheveled or thrown off by it. And the number one lesson I've learned in this is no matter what happens, the best thing to do is to not react immediately. Meaning like your gut reaction, like your innate human nature is when a problem arises that you have to resolve it immediately or respond with an answer immediately. Whereas like the business owner and operator, the best thing to do is focus on gathering more facts and to sleep on it, to come up with a solution. Because I could have just freaked out at my partner, my bottling partner, and burned a bridge or done something or come up with some rash solution. But we slept on it Monday night and figured out a solution and a process to narrow down that, well, only 20% are defected. And with the extra oversight and everything, we, we estimate we can get that down to 10% defect rate. 
And the biggest importance for me is getting at least 80 or 90% of my product to the U.S. And I'll figure out how to— Cash flow. I'll figure, yeah, exactly. I'll figure out what to do with the 10 or 20% defective. Does that bottling partner, if I can ask this, if I can't, we'll cut it. Do, are they manufacturing and producing tequila for other brands? Yeah, they are. So that's no secret. Most every distillery in Mexico produces for multiple brands. But they're doing it off your ingredients, your your proprietary yep. list there, and they're doing it with your products, your bottling, everything. Exactly. So they're like a contract manufacturer that produces for about 10 other brands. So if you react too emotionally and you burned a bridge, maybe sometimes it's justified. But if you don't think strategically, then, you, I mean, your revenue comes to a screeching halt, right? Because then you'd have to go find another distribution partner. Yeah. If I had to overnight switch production partners, that, would, that could be a disaster. We could plan over time a switch, like a phase into a switch. But, yeah, if we were forced to switch, you know, overnight or in a week, we'd go out of business. Yeah, I mean, your diplomacy in articulating clearly accountability, but also egos and personalities and trying to make a win-win and relationship and overlook things that need to be overlooked. And the X factor in all of this is twofold. It's the cultural difference between Americans and Mexicans. Yeah, that's... Uh, and then also the language barrier. So all this is happening in Spanish. Do you speak Spanish? Sí, yo puedo hablar. <laughs> Pero mi español es muy malo. Did you learn that before? Um, well, it started in Senior Hernandez's uh, class at, at MUS, <laughs> nice. and then I uh, studied abroad in Guatemala with Senior Hernandez for a summer in high school. Hey, there, there's fate again, man. There's fate again. And then in college, I was uh, definitely more infatuated with girls and parties and adventure and stuff than I was with, with class. And I really wanted to go fly fishing and see Patagonia. And so I... Uh, <laughs> I convinced my parents to let me study abroad in Santiago, Chile, which is, they speak the fastest form of Spanish in the world there. But at UVA, the only program, my parents said, sure, but it has to actually be like advancing towards your degree, so you have to take classes. The only program that semester was a pre-med program. I was a double major in English and history. The only program was a pre-med program, so I had to go work in a hospital and med school in Santiago, so on the weekends I could go fly fishing and skiing. But that's kind of fate again coming in because I really, my Spanish improved dramatically down there. there. So you've talked about this distribution partner. Could you maybe share, I mean, you picked the wrong partner on this. Could only imagine how big of a dumpster fire that would be. What were you looking for to really try to make sure you had the right fit? What did you see in them? Yeah, so that's a great question because that was, the big search and it took multiple trips to Mexico, which we can talk about over a drink is quite an adventure. But not only was that so, you know, I guess knowing that this is all about uh, the Jaguar conservation and my uncle's legacy and then my next project, which will hopefully be part of my legacy, I needed for the Jaguar conservation part, a, a producer that respected the land and was capable of producing tequila sustainably, which very few are. And then for like my standards for a liquor brand and everything is I need it to be award-winning, so I need to be the best tasting possible tequila. And so we quickly set out on a mission to try to produce the best tequila in the world, you know, the best tasting tequila we possibly can that's produced in the cleanest, most natural, environmentally friendly way. And by happenstance, meeting Mario and Danielle on the bar, they now work for me as my operation managers down there, really? by the way. But not for the manufacturing part. Correct. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They work for our company as our oversight operation managers. 
But if I hadn't met them, I wouldn't have found them. But what struck me is the Vivanco family are fifth-generation tequila producers. They have a massive agave estate in the Los Altos region of Jalisco. It's absolutely beautiful, about 7,000 feet elevation. And they grow and harvest all of their own agave. They don't buy from other farms. And they produce using, like, really old-school boutique methodology. So they were the only group that I met that would produce for me that was producing in this way in terms of respecting the land, being stewards of the land. Because the last thing we could have, if our brand is all about environmental conservation, we can't have a production partner that's ruining the environment where they are. Private equity deals, rolling capital in to buy product, hold it for a return. You know, that's all about the deal. That's all about the leveraging capital, seeing an opportunity. But it sounds like your own values and your own interests at this stage are very much committed to the cause, to the environment, to the people, to the DNA of the production fifth generation. Was there a switch from being just a, lack of a better word, a deal junkie to being where it's inside of you and you're not going to compromise on these things that might cost more, they might be more difficult, but it represents the DNA of the work? Yeah, for sure. So I'd be lying if I said it happened over, didn't happen over time. It wasn't like one singular event. But part of it was becoming a dad and really thinking about my legacy and, you know, selling. You know, it was one, one path I could be the dad that, you know, in close my eyes dreaming, that made a whole lot of money selling a drug, alcohol, that could, in theory, harm people. Um, and, you know, alcohol is two-sided. There's the positive side. We think about fellowship, festivities, the holidays, family, friends, but there's also a really dark side to it as well. Yeah, I mean, it's created pain in my own life at times. I still drink, but— Oh, yeah. I mean, there's anybody that does it, you can know that you can take it too far. Absolutely. And so I started to realize that if there wasn't something more to it, if it was just about making a buck and selling a legal, a very much legal drug, alcohol, then that's not necessarily the most fulfilling life or definitely not the legacy that I really— wanted to leave. So I realized that I wanted to do something bigger. This is obviously the skill set and the industry in which I built my skill set to date. And so I wanted to leverage that, you know, skill set to do something better and bigger and started to really do a lot of self-reflection about what I wanted my legacy to be to my son and thinking about grandkids and all that and realized there had to be like a higher purpose to it in our, what we do other than just trying to seek profits. It's pretty awesome. Going back a minute, you said you're in five states. You were breaking even first month you launched in May. Took no pay for 13 months. Part of your plan for, I guess, the rest of the year, you said 15 states. Is that kind of normal from a get-to-market, or is that pretty fast tempo? Very, very fast tempo. How have you done that? What's driven that? Well, leveraging connections. And so while I'm like right now the— the sole owner of my company. I have raised a lot of money. I've raised around $5 million from friends and family through a debt instrument. And that I could not do this without their support. So I invested all of my money to get the thing off the ground and and be able to present a business model to investors. But I couldn't do that with just my own savings. I had to raise money from other people. And so it was raising money from people that believed in me um, no doubt that was able to give me the capital I needed to grow quickly and then also recruit a team. So I've recruited a sales and marketing team from Louis Vuitton Moet Hennessy. 
They're one of the largest luxury conglomerates in the world. And under their Moet Hennessy division, they produce amazing beverage alcohol brands like Moet, Chandon, Hennessy, Bouv Clicquot, Belvedere Vodka, et cetera, et cetera. They're some of the best sales and marketers in the world. So they're a part of those brands now, or they were formerly there? That's where I hired them from. They worked for them. Now they're full-time for you. Correct. On your payroll. Yeah. So they're, that's your sales and marketing team around the country. Yep. So there's three of them in sales and marketing right now. And their collective 75, 80 years of industry experience is part of how we're able to grow so fast. And so it's about surrounding. No entrepreneur can achieve success without building a team. And so that team starts with your family believing in you. In that case, it's my wife and my parents and my in-laws believing that I wasn't crazy to go on this journey. And then it's then it then came and people that are willing to put up a check to support me and you know believe in my vision and hope that they'll make a good return too. And then it takes recruiting a team of actual sales marketing people, a CFO, accountants, insurance, tax, all of the necessary back office support as well to build a company. I mean, you can't build a liquor brand by yourself. And so we've been able to scale so fast, one, because I've done this before and kind of learned what worked and what didn't. And part of that experience was realizing I need a really awesome team. And knowing that the area that I need the best team, the most experience is in sales and marketing, because we've already gone over how challenging that is. And so by having the early supporters of my family and friends to invest and all that, I was able to get enough money so I could go out and make a really compelling offer to people that work for this big luxury conglomerate of, hey, let's change the world and, and help save wild jaguars and the environment and do something that no one's really done before. And, you know, I still kind of pinch myself some days. I'm like, why in the hell did they leave that company to join to join me? But thankfully, Kathy, uh, Liz, and Joe did, and, and we're killing it. Liz, actually, we hired from Tequila Comos, which is another luxury uh, conglomerate owned by Gallo, but we were able to recruit really A-list talent to join us. So they're pounding the payment in these states all around the country trying to get you into those markets. Yeah. So right now our team's very much global. So obviously I'm from here in Memphis and we do business in Mexico. My head of sales and marketing, Kathy, lives in Austin, Texas. Liz lives in Park City, Utah. Joe lives in New York. Uh, and then Joel, my CMO, my head of marketing, lives in Paris, France. So we have a remote team of uh, awesome folks. So that presents its own challenges of trying to manage people that are older and much more experienced than me that live very far away. How many bottles, if you're open to sharing, are you sure. producing a day right now? Well, we do it in production tranches. So it's not like daily production. We're not quite there yet. But um, our year one goal, so 2023 goal, is 120,000 bottles, which is 20,000 six-pack cases which is a very big start. So like and that's at what? 40 bucks a bottle? Well, we we retail oh, well, it for yeah, between it, yeah, 50 and 60 dollars a bottle. Our wholesale cost is about 50% of that. So our target revenue for year one is like approximately 3.5 to 4 million depending on the product mix, meaning like different ones of our expressions sell for different price points and it's hard for us to predict exactly how that's going to be sold like the percentage of which expression uh, but depending on the product mix, based on the different profit margins and, and revenue, we should be profitable year one, which is a big testament. And then uh, looking around 3.5 to 4 million in revenue, hopefully. Still a big, a big challenge in the second half. And of this you year. don't have a lot of capital, hard capital costs. Sales and marketing is very expensive, and our inventory is very expensive. So we will have to invest a lot over time. But 
the way I've built this model of our business is all in a third-party logistics model, meaning I own no tangible assets other than my inventory and like laptops and stuff. So I have a production partner that produces it for us, logistics partner that imports it for us and warehouses our finished product, distributing partners in each state that do the distribution. So ultimately, we're a sales and marketing organization and an importer. And I've also designed the business to where I can run it from a laptop and cell phone. That laptop and cell phone my wife bought me from anywhere in the world if I have internet. And so I guess even from a distribution standpoint, picking the right partner there, because if you're going to hit 15, 10 more markets through the end of this year, you don't want to screw around with uh, somebody that doesn't know what they're doing. So you're, you're looking for somebody there that has a national footprint and understands things. Yeah, regional. And then the bigger the distributor, the harder the negotiation of you know, they want extra perks and extra money, a longer margin, more marketing dollars. So to build the brand, it's like all about incentivizing the the distributors. So we have our sales and marketing team. We have to create our social media pages. That's the easy part. And then we have to support the distributor in each market by giving them marketing dollars to spend. And so we call that below the line spend because that's like actually in-market sales spend. And that means we have to offer discounts to retailers to buy more than one case at a time so we can get a display or like a restaurant. We have to effectively buy menu features. We can't legally pay the restaurant to promote our product, but we can incentivize them to do a menu feature through a discount, meaning if you buy one bottle, it's this price, but if you buy a case, it's a discounted price. So they're making more margin. Exactly, and trying to incentivize them to put it on their menu. And if they buy a full case they're, to sell that, they're going to want to put it on their menu. Um, and then we have to incentivize all the distributor sales reps. So the actual feet in the street out there calling on all these thousands of accounts are the distributor salespeople. And they typically make a base salary plus some commission from their employer, but they carry hundreds of other brands typically. And so to be front of mind, I have to pay them extra. So for every case they sell, I pay them you know, a commission. And I put out bounties for new accounts sold, meaning every new account sold in Texas, I'll pay you know, $50 the first time for the first 60 days in the market. So creating economic incentivized to motivate all these people to promote your product. That's the real art and the real name of this game, where rubber meets the road. It's something that I'm definitely still learning. It's pretty complicated. What about tequila? Why is there so much optimism? And why is there so much growth? I mean, I saw that's supposed to be like a $15, $20 billion market by like 2030. Is that fair? I think that's fair. So tequila is really cool. So first off, uh, right now, tequila is the fastest growing spirit category in the U.S., and by the end of 2023, will be the number one spirit category in the country, meaning Americans will spend more dollars on tequila than they will on vodka or whiskey or bourbon or any of that, which is amazing. And we can kind of back into, maybe circle back to why there's this surge in demand for tequila. But suffice it to say for now, there is. And what's really exciting about it is that the demographics of tequila consumption are across the board. So meaning like male and female audiences drink tequila in exactly the same ratio. It's 50-50 split. Black, white, Hispanic, Asian Americans all are drinking tequila. So based on racial and ethnic demographics, it's really interesting because everyone's drinking it. Um, whereas like in bourbon, it's really about 80% white dudes, white males between 30 and 50 is the market, which is cool. I mean, I know how to market to that audience. I fall into that audience. But it's refreshing to be able to market to everyone. There's just more opportunity, which is really exciting. 
But what's so cool about tequila compared to every other spirit in the world, so I say spirit, what I mean by that is liquor, right? So most liquors are made from either grapes or grain. So you can make vodka from grapes. You can make vodka from wheat, corn. Tito's is corn. You've heard of wheat vodkas. You, and you make bourbon and whiskeys from a combination of bourbons made from a combination of corn, rye, or wheat, and malted barley. You know, single malt scotches are made from malted barley. All those are grains. And I guess you can make you can make vodka from potatoes too. And forgive me, I guess I, I don't know exactly what family that falls into, the vegetable family, I guess. But agave spirits like tequila are interesting because they're made from agave. Agave is a plant that's fundamentally different than grain or fruit or vegetables. It's it's a succulent, effectively, not a cactus, that is indigenous to Mexico. And people have been making alcohol from agave plants for something like 6,000 years. And so it's just really interesting how it's fundamentally different than other uh, liquors or spirits. And I think that's part of the consumer demand to it is people have started to realize that it's a cleaner high, like the the effect of the alcohol you get from tequila is different. I Some people say it's an upper. I don't think that's correct to say, but there's definitely a different feeling you get from it. Uh, it's lower in calorie than grain or, or fruit or vegetable-based spirits. So health people say, well, drinking's not good for you, but if you're going to drink, you should drink tequila because it's lower calories. And then there's just this massive growth and demand for Mexican culture in this country. So tequila is protected by a denomination of origin. So think of like champagne, it has to come from a certain region in France. Tequila has to come from a very specific region in Mexico. That's a global yeah, rule. It's a global rule through trade negotiations between, you know, participating countries. I mean, in China and various places, North Korea, who knows. But in bourbon is America's spirit. So bourbon can actually be made anywhere in America. It doesn't have to come from Kentucky, as some people think. Uh, scotch, the scotch, you know, from Scotland have scotch. There's a lot of them from a lot of European countries. So you can't make bourbon in England? Nope, it would be whiskey. But you could make bourbon in Hawaii, which is kind of wild. Yeah. Because England would probably produce a better whiskey than Hawaii, uh, just due to the environment the conditions and everything. But, but there's like cheeses and wines and liquors and liqueurs that are protected all across the, the world. Um, a lot of it comes from Europe because of how old civilization is there and all that. But um, it's really interesting. And so it's one of the most popular Mexican exports. The U.S. is the number one tequila market in the world. So we drink more tequila than Mexicans do, which is interesting. And what's also super exciting about it is the global demand's just starting. So around, I think it's 80 or 90% of the tequila exported from Mexico comes to the U.S. And so we've barely scratched the surface of tequila consumption in Europe, Asia, Africa, South America, et cetera. Doesn't Kim Kardashian have a tequila company? <laughs> it is Kendall Jenner. Kendall Jenner. Close. It's pretty a part ignorant. of the Kardashian uh, family. And I read that like 80% of her, that's a her, right? That's a her. <laughs> I think she's still a she. Okay. <laughs> Is global. Is that right? Outside of the U.S.? I'd have a hard time imagining that, but maybe with her. I mean, uh, you never know. Those Kardashians are, are really, I mean, as much as we laugh at them, they're pretty impressive with their businesses. Right. And pr private equity, your, your former life. So, I mean, from a global standpoint, tequila is just... Because of those reasons you listed, it's just like, it's just been under the radar for years. Yep. 
and it's now hot. But so what's really interesting is we look at the phases of tequila. It started off as like a party drink, right, that became popular in the 80s of people taking a shot with the lime and licking the salt and all that. And then Patron came out. When Patron was invented, it was actually a really high-end tequila. It's gone down in quality with scale. Uh, it's so they've now, compromised. On they've the compromised. I mean, it's now like a $10 billion brand, Patron. It used to be what? Well, it was started by just two guys uh, that wanted to— Okay, but you're saying as it's become a $10 billion brand— it, It's raised a lot of awareness for the premium tequila category. And then in the 2000s, tequila started to become associated with nightclubs and like bottle services. And then celebrity brands started popping up. And the most famous of which is Casamigas with George Clooney, which they started, I think, in 2013 and sold in 2016 or 17 for a billion dollars. How much did they put in, do you know? I don't, but they would have had to invest millions. And that raised a Did they do their own production? No. So they did— had a similar model to work. Yeah, pretty much any Given the fact foreign that national is going to start a brand, as did Patron, by partnering with an existing distillery down there. And then they leveraged his name. Yeah, they leveraged his name and likeness to do the unthinkable and become the fastest-growing spirit brand ever until now The Rock has dethroned them with the even faster-growing tequila brand called Terramana. Where's his produced? At the same facility that produced the original Casamigos. But what I was getting at is these. That's like now the new phase that the celebrity thing starting to get overplayed. People are starting to look for what's like authentic tequila, made sustainably without chemical additives. The dirty secret in tequila is ninety four percent of the tequila sold have chemical manipulant additives in them, and so that's things like glycerin, flavoring concentrates, whether it be vanilla, caramel flavors, coloring. They add uh, artificial sweeteners. And things like that that are like eight to 10,000 times sweeter than sugar. And they just totally manipulate the product because they, these most brands cut every corner they can from the production process and make a very cheap distillate, a very cheap liquor. And they enhance it with artificial chemicals. There's just growing awareness of that and people want the real stuff. And so it's called additive free tequila, which our brand is an additive free, confirmed certified additive free tequila brand. And that's what we see as the new phase of tequila, sort of the renaissance of the real stuff, the way it was produced in the early 1900s, 1800s. And that's what's really got us excited because we're making a truly authentic product. And there's this consumer-driven demand for it of doing it the right way. Similar to so many other movements going on in our society and communities that we've been overloaded with options and we've been overloaded with products that are not in our best interests. And so you're doubling down on the story, the preservation, on the greater good, and you're also doubling down on the benefit yep, to people. and the authenticity and transparency. People just demand today transparency in things they put in their body. How do you drink? Do you drink it straight or do you mix it? What do you do? Yeah, so uh, we have a Blanco and a Reposado on the market. Our Blanco is clear and unaged. The Reposado is rested in oak barrels and has a different flavor profile. I drink them both neat and on the rocks, but I like the Blanco, the clear, either in a margarita or Paloma, or just what we call a jag and soda, which is our play on a ranch water. It's just Topo Chico or sparkling water, our Blanco tequila, Jaguar tequila, and an orange peel. The Reposado has much more caramel vanilla flavoring, and you can make all sorts of interesting cocktails with that. I actually just prefer to drink that one on the rocks, though. Will you roll out other spirits down the road or just tequila? Yeah, uh, we have a gin brand that will hopefully launch this fall. Same facility? 
different facility entirely. So while I've been doing the tequila, we've also been working on this gin brand that's produced in Texas. Similar type production and process or totally different ballgame? Totally different. I mean, it's obviously similar because it's also another liquor, but it's a totally different process, totally different recipes, different production partners. The, The one commonality is we're using the same recycled glass factory in Guadalajara to produce our glass, but um, we designed a much more elaborate custom glass mold for the gin that's taken a long time to get designed, like a really unique bottle shape for it. Uh, But we're excited about it. Gin is really popular over in Europe, not as popular here in the U.S. right now, but the bet is is that that category is going to grow as well. So Why is that? Well, that that European influence is going to come to our country to some extent the way there's sort of a— an international influence from European countries to the States and the States over to Europe. And then it's just gin hadn't had its day here in the States since Prohibition. So it's just sort of due for uh, for some growth and excitement. What's the name of that? It's called Waymar Gin House. Why is it in your best interest to be doing two things at one time? Well, that's a great uh, question. Some people might say that I should just focus on one thing. But my business is called Morningside Brands. And under Morningside Brands, I'm going to produce multiple spirit brands and build a portfolio, starting with tequila, our Jaguar tequila, then with Waymar Gin, and then hopefully, I like visiting the islands in the Caribbean, so I'd love to do a rum, and you know who knows what's next. What have you done from start to now, I could guess at this, but that others miss or others choose to do differently? Just in general, I think a lot of just people, not necessarily like liquor brand operators, but as people have a dream about, you know, starting a side business or doing something, and then very few ever actually do. And then those that do keep it as a side business, meaning they're afraid to ever like fully commit to their idea. And to be successful as an entrepreneur, it takes 100% commitment. So taking that leap of faith, actually just going for it, I think is one big difference. My background's unique of that, like, I'm not amazing or the best in any category, whether it be finance, legal, accounting, marketing, sales, strategy, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm pretty good in all of it. So having a diverse background of being pretty good at a lot of things really helps in starting a company because you have to deal with a whole lot of things. But I would say the biggest thing is just believing in myself and taking that leap of faith. There's few people that I know that would go this path, you know, quit their job and not have any sort of income and buy a plane ticket to Mexico where they, by the way, the U.S. government advises people not to go because of the cartel and safety. So there's some risk there. It's definitely an adventure to say the least down there. But from a business standpoint, to me, it seems that you've raised a very respectable amount of money. You've outsourced the production to a partner that you trust that you believe in but and that you have control over because you built the ingredients list from scratch. You raise more money than what a lot of people could probably do that are at this stage. And you also have gone for the very best in what you can find from a sales and marketing and distribution standpoint. And you have your previous venture to lean back on. Yeah, I'd say that's really fair. So, I mean, a lot of lessons learned about how to do it over the years. But I would say a common mistake that a lot of entrepreneurs make is not raising enough money out of the gate uh, and because they're afraid of dilution, meaning they're afraid that they're going to give up more of the company. But inevitably, that dilution will come if you don't 
properly capitalize the business. And so I would rather raise money on the front end to make sure we have enough runway to be able to build as opposed to trying to live, you know, hand to mouth with our company because then we're not going to be able to afford to grow. What have you learned raising $5 million so far and given what you've done prior? What works when you're raising money and what doesn't? Well, commitment and passion. So you meet a lot of people that like raise money for like some sort of commission or something. Uh, or like, hey, like Sam, I'll pay you a commission if you can help me raise some money. That's probably not going to work because the investor is not going to hear the passion in your voice and the commitment. So, you know, I don't do fancy, I make a pitch deck. I don't do fancy. I've probably raised in my career 15 to $20 million uh, in total amongst all ventures, but I found just like candid conversations with people, letting them know that I truly am committed to this and being able to answer any question that comes up is critical. Like you see on Shark Tank, the wannabe entrepreneurs that get up there that can't answer the basic questions. Like you just have to know your model, your numbers, your product cold to where any question that can be asked, you can have an answer for. And that helps build confidence in people because when you meet with an investor, most often the investor, one, is hopefully excited about the opportunity, but then their mind's always going to go to, all right, what what can go wrong here? And they're going to start going down the list of every scenario they can come up with about why this is not a good idea. And it's up to you pitching the concept to be able to have the counter argument or the number or be able to answer or dispel any doubt they have in in their line of questioning. But yeah, I've never hired an outside person to raise money for me or anything. I just do it all on my own, meeting with people, reaching out to as many people as I possibly can, taking the meetings, trying to do as many in-person meetings as possible. What's the pressure like? Do you feel it or can you just turn it off? Or, you know, because of your own experience, friends and family, if you lost that $5 million. Hmm. Yeah, that, there's definitely some pressure there because uh, I have my family invested as well. And uh, that becomes a big responsibility. In terms of the pressure, I guess I've just been living with that for so long now that I don't think about it on a daily basis. But I mean, at the end of the day, I do think about that a lot of making sure to do my investors right. And we're certainly a team. I view us as a team acting together. And uh, it would be a real shame if somehow like I only made money without them making money. The, the ultimate like dream is to be like in that you know room or have an event to celebrate winning together as a team. Like, that's what excites me. Earlier, you touched on it, but a couple things as we wrap up. Mexico, cartels, crime. How do you see that? How's that affect or not affect what you're doing? Well, it affects everything. Uh, and it's both our brand and mission in the Jaguar conservation due to the stigma around the border, uh, as well as what's actually happening in Jalisco, central Mexico, where we operate. So I'd say first off, the U.S. media definitely portrays Mexico overall in a pretty unfair light. I mean, there's no question the cartel is real and it's a real problem. But it's equally America's problem as it is Mexico's in the sense that it's our seemingly insatiable appetite for illegal drugs that has given them the business opportunity to become so powerful. And so, one, it's definitely our problem just as much as it is theirs. Secondly, you know, Memphis is a pretty crime-ridden town, and we get a bad light in, in terms of the national media. But it's not like there's just crime happening on every street corner every minute down there. The cartel's real, but if you're smart about it, I do believe you can travel to Jalisco, meet with these distilleries, do this in a safe and smart way. Uh, but it's something that is always in the back of my mind about keeping a relatively low profile 
not flashing money, definitely not like hanging out or going places with random people I meet. And so it's definitely very uh, conscientious of it. But kind of back to the first point on the brand and the border, the main one of the main things about our Jaguar conservation mission is the the reserve is about 200 miles south of Tucson or 100 and something miles south of the U.S. Uh, Arizona Mexico border, and so the border is very much a part of what we're talking about here. So the U.S. Mexico borderlands are obviously there's a huge political stigma of immigrants trafficking of illegal goods, illegal drugs, cartel, crime, et cetera. Um, and due to that, and that's on Mexico's side too, I mean, they they think very negatively of the borderlands too. What's happened is, is nobody is really looking at how amazing from an environmental, ecological, and geographical standpoint our border is, meaning that some of the most environmentally rich areas in the world from an ecological standpoint, I mean, the number of different diverse species living in one ecosystem exist right along the U.S.-Mexican border. It is not a desert. We as Americans somehow, due to misconceptions, perceive Mexico as a border and beaches and nothing but desert barren wasteland. Mexico is rich with beautiful mountains, all sorts of wildlife, and the borderlands is not a desert. It's mostly mountains. And in those mountains, there are bear, there are elk, there are bighorn sheep, there are jaguars. There are some of the most beautiful vistas and views you've ever seen. And there's so much amazing wildlife to protect there. So part of our brand is about raising awareness for a lot of these bigger concepts. And obviously, Mother Nature doesn't know of a border, right? These animals cross our border regularly. And so the whole that whole thing is like very much core to what we're doing when it comes to Stigmas against Mexico, crime, the border, cartel, all that. You're exalting the beauty of the country as well. Yeah. And not just jaguars themselves, but the country as a whole. No, no doubt. So the jaguars are the largest apex predator in North America. And so when we say jaguar conservation, yes, we mean literally trying to save the big cats. But when you protect an apex predator, you have to protect the entire ecosystem. Like on the Northern Jaguar Reserve, 60,000 acres proper and the other 128,000 that they manage – there's all sorts of amazing wildlife. And by protecting jaguars, you're helping save all of the other animals. So we call the jaguar an umbrella species um, that allows us to, by protecting it, save all the smaller, maybe air quotes, less cool or uh, fun animals to think about that are equally important to the environment and the ecosystem. When you're talking to this rock star of a sales force and marketing group that have sold for some of the most well-known brands in the world, do they share feedback loops pretty consistently that the story of the Jaguar, the story of preservation, that that's a huge kicker when you're trying to get in all these new markets. Without a doubt. And that's what I that's what helped recruit them to the team is that they wanted to do something bigger and better with their lives too. And yeah, yeah all of our distributors and retail partners definitely appreciate the differentiating factor that that is because we're the only mission-driven tequila or spirits brand in the U.S. that I'm aware of that a lot of brands like give back to various things, but very few have that like baked right into their name and identity. What can you say about building trust and relationships with the Mexican people and operating an intense startup that's now profitable with people that are across in another country and have their own concerns about Americans and how to do business and all those things? 
Well, they're very different than Americans culturally, meaning that like in the first meetings, my uncle, who's been living in Mexico for 30 years, thankfully came with me. And he said, Macaulay, we can't be the stereotypical gringos that come in here demanding, what's your production volume? What's the price? How do I get a better deal? And just want to talk business, business, business. We need to come in and ask questions about their family, what makes their tequila good and quality, and focus it on getting to know these people because that is the culture here. So when we met Sergio Vivanco, Mr. Vivanco, we really didn't talk business at all. We sat and drank tequila on a portico at the distillery, this really beautiful little outdoor table, the great view of mountains and everything. We drank tequila for like seven hours straight, (laughs) which is kind of fun and ridiculous in and of itself. But we didn't talk about business the whole time. We talked about where we like to travel, what music we liked, what food we like to eat, our family. And then we really bonded. We had this amazing bonding experience. And obviously blues music's really big here. Uh, Mr. Ivanko is probably about 65, and he grew up listening to early American rock and roll and blues, so knew all about Memphis and barbecue and Mississippi Delta and all that. And he'd never been here, but he read about it and heard about it his whole life, so he bonded over that. We talked about travel and really took the opportunity uh, to get to know him and his team on a personal level, and then we all went and had an amazing meal together. And then it wasn't until follow-up meetings that we ever started talking about numbers because the first— And most important thing was to bond with him and his team on a very human personal level. And I try to use that approach in like any, in anywhere, like one of the biggest keys to success for anybody starting a business is leveraging your network and figuring out who's doing what that, you know, that's in whatever area you're trying to get into and, and building that network. And that starts with personal connections, not, you know, being a jerk to people or being too matter of fact or demanding or trying to beat people up over price and being a fair, you know, negotiator and all that and being somebody that people actually like. Cause I mean, this day and age, we all have cell phones obviously. And you, you call people in your network and it's really easy to call somebody and them not have not call you back or not respond to your text. So you want to be that likable person to where they'll always answer your call and respond to your text. Yeah. That's a hard thing to do, especially when you're trying to build something from scratch. And I'm certainly not there, but trying. Yeah. And this has been incredible. Impressed with, the sincerity that you have, the heart for the for the people that are in on this with you, the commitment and just paranoia almost about the product itself and then the bigger picture on the value and what it represents and your ability to take big swings. I appreciate it. As you can kind of tell, I do love talking about it. So this is a really fun opportunity to get to share my story and what I'm up to. Uh, hopefully it inspires somebody out there to go do something cool for themselves they gotta have some stones (laughs) (laughs) thank you for listening to this week's episode of the driven by podcast if you enjoy the show please leave a review please subscribe to the show and you can follow me on social on twitter and instagram to join me for future episodes of the driven by podcast hope you have a great week and see you next time